Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 39. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word be our rule. May Your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The other day I ran across a short article entitled, Why I Preach Only One Funeral Message. That drew my attention. That sounds like it can make life easier uh, in the days ahead. Um, Written by a a gentleman, a retired PCA minister most of you have never heard of, but uh, he was in the town where we lived uh, before moving here, and he was a faithful man, labored week in and week out, and in recent years has started to write more, and I'm thankful. And In this article, he he said that for, for the first number of years of his ministry, he would come up with sermon texts for messages at funerals, but then he realized he really needed to go to just one text, uh, John 11, the death of Jesus, because he said John 11 is a sermon waiting to happen. Um, he, it, it's an incredibly comforting passage for believers. It's an incredibly evangelistic passage for unbelievers there at funerals. Where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then, of course, Jesus ends that great statement about himself with this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And so, um, what a great encouragement uh, as I would go forward and having the opportunity uh, for to speak at more and more funerals. Focus on Jesus. Well, I don't have one sermon yet, but I do have one one statement that I share with Christians at the time of the death of a believer, whether a family member or a friend. Um, a, A believer being a person who has received and rested upon Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. And what I share is the words from 1 Thessalonians 4, where in verse 13 we read Paul writing to the church, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so, of course, the encouraging word is, yes, grieve, Death is an enemy. Death is not the way it should be, but grieve with hope. Hope in the resurrection. Hope in eternal life. Hope that comes through Jesus. Indeed, at the time of death of a believer, we should grieve. But we should grieve with hope. We're in our series, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. I want to make a comment or two about worship. Children in particular, how would you answer this question? What is the chief end of man? We can all do it together. Man's chief end 
is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to worship Him. It's our primary purpose. It's our ultimate purpose. Indeed, on the grace and peace postcard that we've run out of, that we need to reprint, is this statement and this question, to be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? Remember the title of the series, Seeing All of Life as Worship Through the Psalms. Imagine for a moment that there are only 65 books in the Bible. Imagine that the longest and the largest book is not in the Scriptures. Imagine for a moment if the Psalms are not here. What would be missing? I'm serious. Ask yourself, what would be missing if you didn't have the book of Psalms? You'd have, what would be missing in particular is the language of worship, the language of being reoriented to and realigned with God. But my friends, I have good news. The book of Psalms is in the Bible And Psalm 39 is one of those 150 songs and prayers offered to God by his people. As we will see in Psalm 39, it begins with burning anger that's kept inside and it ends with outward cries and tears. And right in the middle, bracketed by six verses before and six verses after, is a desperate statement. Derek Kidner, a well-respected commentator of the Old Testament, says this, the very presence of such prayers, and he's talking specifically about Psalm 39 in Scripture, is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. John Calvin, after calling the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, goes on to say this, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit here has drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the mind of men are wont to be agitated. And oh, we will see this in Psalm 39. The Psalms indeed speak a common language of both faith and experience. As I hope you read in the, something, in the preparing for worship email, you may have read this. In the Psalms, God has given the church, that is, he's given us, a language which allows it and us to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. Desperate and miserable Christians can sing. They can sing Psalm 39 and worship God. Psalm 39, if you did get a chance to read it already, is a most unusual psalm. It's It's a personal and autobiographical autobiographical lament, and it borrows, as I said earlier, from Job. It borrows from Ecclesiastes some of the language. 
Now put your eyes on verse 7 with me. It's at the heart of the psalm, at the center of the psalm. It's the turning point of the psalm. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. A desperate statement made by David, the psalmist. Well, with verse 7, David's desperate statement of his hope being in God, being both the center and the turning point of the psalm, there is a movement in Psalm 39 to hope and from hope. And we're going to ask two questions of the text this morning. How does the psalmist get to hope? And where does he go from hope? How does he get to hope? And where does he go from hope? So join with me as I read the first six verses. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Let's stop there. Here, David is saying, I'm silent. He's telling himself, be silent. He's, he's musing. It's a strained silence. It's an agonizing time of silent protest. It's the inner workings of his heart that generate this psalm. And he's seeking to heed his own admonition that we saw in Psalm 38 to, to not fret. And he's doing it by remaining silent. He doesn't want to give the wicked around him. He doesn't want to give men opportunities to further discourage him by the inconsistency of the God he says he follows and worshiped and his own life. He, he's, he's silent. But see how he says he doesn't want to sin? He's, he's silent for a purpose because he knows at that moment if he speaks, it, it's, it's going to be sinful. He describes his distress as not getting better or even staying the same, but getting worse. And this language of my, my heart in verse 3, my heart became hot within me. It's the language of anger, of a, a burning furnace of anger. Indeed, he says further that the fire burned. The fire burned. David has sovereignly been placed in this situation. It's worth asking us the question as we look around to our life. Do we know that God has put us in this situation? Do we understand that we are here not necessarily for our enjoyment, but maybe, just maybe, maybe this suffering in silence is part of our sanctification? Because David will get there. He'll get there. He is silent. For a time, but then he says, beginning in verse 4, 
he speaks to the Lord. And let's hear what he says. He chooses not to speak to men, but he chooses to speak to the Lord. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil and heaps up, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. He's speaking to the Lord about his fleeting life, the frailty of his life, and it's the burning question. Lord, make me know my end. Here he's tapping into the wisdom literature. He's tapping into to, uh, Ecclesiastes, which you hear the same language about life being a breath and here and gone. He's tapping into Job who complains that there's no hope. Again, because of the Psalms, we are given language that we can express to the Lord in our distress in our agony, in our misery. And what is his one request? Make me know my end. God, you are God, and I am, as it were, nothing before you. My life comes and goes as a breath. It is frail, it is fleeting. Make me know my end. He's asking for a fresh apprehension, as it were, of the transitory nature of his own, and indeed all human life that as Ecclesiastes brings out that life apart from walking with the Lord is indeed empty, pointless, meaningless. David is acknowledging before the Lord the, the brevity of life. Time is short. As someone reminded me recently, we're all on borrowed time. So David here, he's silent for a time, but then he speaks. And he wants to know, what's my life about? Uh, teach me to make it count. I think Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we can live wisely before you. David turns to the Lord. Lord, give meaning and purpose to my oh brief life before it's too late. Before it's too late. We're all living on borrowed time. And so, is there something today that, that you need to do? Is there a friend that you need to reach out to in the midst of your brief time here that you need to say, I am sorry, please forgive me? Is there a friend, a family member, a coworker that instead of growing in bitterness, you need to... to Reach out to them and, and ask them a question. It, what have I done to offend you? Or, same way, reach out to someone and, and, um, and let them know that you believe you've been offended. Time is short. We're on borrowed time. Is there a word you need to speak to someone? David is well aware he speaks of man 
a mere breath, a shadow, and there's turmoil and difficulty. And then, of course, we see this language of you work and you work and you work and you build up wealth and then it goes to someone else. Jesus had a word or two to say about that. Some of the gospels about people that accumulate wealth. We see that in Ecclesiastes. We see that in James. So in this first movement, David the psalmist is going to hope. It starts with silence and then it opens up into speech. If you end it at verse six, it's somewhat depressing, isn't it? David is saying, life is vain. I work and toil. And after I die, what's going to become of what I've done? What's going to become of me? Ask yourself, how do you get to hope? How do you get to hope? And so with these words, both inward to himself and outward to God, the psalmist has arrived and he makes this statement, this amazing statement. And now, in the midst of how I've complained and burned inside and in the midst of having looked to you, Lord, to ask you about life. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. My hope is in the Lord. And the second question is, is where does he go? He, he gets to hope. Where does he go from hope? Where does he go? Let's read beginning in verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. His first request was, Lord, make me know my end. And now his request is this, deliver me. It's a request for forgiveness. David, as the language unfolds, he is acknowledging his sin and he's acknowledging that God is right to be disciplining him for his sin. David is not concerned about the sin of others around him. He's not concerned about what is the problem with other people. He's concerned about himself and he wants deliverance. He wants forgiveness. He's aware of his sin and he's aware of God's rightful, as it were, heavy hand upon him. I was reminded last week after Psalm 38 that there's a great expression out there. It was helpful for me to hear that when it comes to sin, I am worst and I am first. That's language of the Apostle Paul, right? The worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. When it comes to thinking about your sin, David here, in a way, is saying, I'm worst. I'm first in sin. And he's looking to God to deal with it. He pleads for forgiveness. Deliver me from all my transgressions. 
It's interesting, isn't it? It's not just a specific transgression. David would later in a psalm say, surely I have been sinful from birth. There's no part of us that sin hasn't touched. There are sin that we know we've committed and there's certainly sin that we have no idea that we've committed. And yet he is looking to the Lord for deliverance and forgiveness. But then notice how verses 12 and 13 go because there's a a final request, a final plea, a, a, a petition at the end. He writes in verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. His prayer request is, interestingly, hear my prayer, hear my cry. It's Daniel representing all God's people Daniel 9, before the Lord, Lord, we have sinned, your people have sinned, hear our prayer, answer us. Is your prayer life like that? Of course, God hears our prayers. But why does David say, hear my prayers, O Lord, and give ear to my cry? David is desperate. Strong, mighty King David is desperate. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. I am am full of tears. And listen to this last request. It's interesting. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It sounds like what we read in Job. Job's convinced that there's going to be no more of him and he is gone. Right now, David, it seems, can see no more than his own death. After just a brief life, and he asks no more in light of that than just respite. Relief, But he also gives the language, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He, he weeps and he cries because he grasps more deeply that this world is not his home. He's a pilgrim here just as his fathers before him were sojourners, were guests. Indeed, David would eventually be like all believers looking to that eternal city to come, that permanent home. So it's interesting, isn't it, that David gets to hope and he goes from hope and he pours out his heart before the Lord and he's aware of the Lord's rightful chastening, the Lord's rightful hand upon him. I think David is getting a clearer vision of who God is and who man is. And when you see who God is and you see who you are, you know God is right. You know you are wrong. And you look for a way. You look for a way that can be right with God. We've seen this movement 
from inward anger to outward weeping. We've seen the center and the turning point being amazingly in the midst of this, this confident, though desperate, statement, my hope is in you. But interesting, Psalm 39 does not end at verse 7. Wouldn't it be great? It ends at verse 13. Again, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Psalm 39 is not as bad as it were as Psalm 88, which ends with the psalmist saying that darkness is his closest friend, but it's nonetheless, it's not the most encouraging request for prayer. There's not much confidence, it seems, that David's got about what's beyond his earthly departure. So Psalm 37, excuse me, Psalm 39 does not end, at least for me, with satisfaction. But you know what? There's not even a satisfactory conclusion to the Old Testament. It's as if the Old Testament is not complete. If you turn to the last few verses of Malachi, you'll find that what is promised is that the great and awesome day of the Lord will come. And yet, all has not been said and all has not been done. And yet, we all know that there is a most satisfactory conclusion to the Bible. It is complete. There is no more revelation that is needed. Because of the, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The hope that David could confess, the hope that David could declare, the hope at that desperate moment that David could, could look to, he could only see dimly. And at a distance, that hope to which David looked has arrived. As Paul says to the Galatian church, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Oh, isn't that the longing of David? Being redeemed, being Adopted and knowing that close, intimate relationship that the Father has with His children. When the fullness of time had come, Jesus came. And because of Jesus, who is, in His own words, the resurrection and the life, we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Because all of life, in a way, is heading toward death and decay. Rather, we grieve as a people who have been given, what? A living hope. A living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You know, David was wondering, well, what's going to happen to all my stuff? The believer, the Christian who, who knows Jesus is is looking ahead to that inheritance that is guaranteed for sure and certain. Those of you that know me well enough know that every now and then I have to quote the words of a Kentucky singer-songwriter. Um, I'm actually not going to do that right now. But I'm going to quote the words of someone else before 
the words of that singer-songwriter. Over 25 years ago now, and it seems like yesterday in this brief life, back in 1994, Charles Colson, who, had, who those of you know the story, he was Richard Nixon, President Nixon's hatchet man, ruthless, up to no good. He comes to faith in Christ. He goes to prison for his crime. And he comes out of prison with a vision to serve in particular through something called prison fellowship. Charles Colson, if you don't believe somebody can change, read his spiritual biography. And this is what Charles Colson said at the beginning of the song, Heaven in the Real World. He said this, where is the hope? I meet millions of people who feel demoralized by the decay around us. The hope that each of us has is not who governs us or what laws we pass or what great things we do as a nation. Our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people. And that's where our hope is in this country and that's where our hope is in life. Where is your hope? Where is your hope right now? So I'd like to end now with just a few words from our opening hymn of praise from last Sunday. For those of you that were here, we started off by singing, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. I'd like to read the words of one verse that we did not sing and one verse that we did. Here's what we did not sing last week. Verse three. Thou art the life by which alone we live and all our substance and our strength receive. Oh, comfort us in death's approaching hour, strong-hearted then to face it by, their, by thy power. You see, David is in a way asking about his approach to death. What's my end? Is there hope? He declares it. He wants to believe it. But we did sing this, and it was the final verse from that hymn. Our hope is in no other save in thee. Our faith is built upon thy promise free. Oh, grant to us such stronger hope and sure that we can boldly conquer and endure. You see, my friends, this psalm is calling us to discipline ourselves with the hope that's found in Jesus. Over and over and over again, remind ourselves that we, through faith in Christ, have a living hope. No matter what is going on around us and at times, no matter what is going on in us. Our hope is not in anything but Christ. As we sang at the beginning, Christ is our hope in life and death. My friends, discipline yourself in that hope. Put out your anchor there. Amen.
Oh, Father, we thank you for the book of Psalms. We thank you that in the language of these 150 songs, there is a way to praise you and acknowledge you in the midst of agony and suffering, difficulties. Oh, Father, we thank you for the Psalms, and we thank you in particular today for Psalm 39. We thank you for the bullseye of Psalm 39, asking the question, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait, and acknowledging that my hope is in you. Father, would you be pleased to make this psalm personal to your people? so that we can join the psalmist David in honestly singing and saying, my hope is in you. Thank you, God, for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy that is ours in Jesus, our hope. Amen. Yes, indeed, our hope is built.